Tibetans are very long way ahead of pretty well every other country in the world. I'll tell you something interesting about Marco Pallas. He was a uh, he was of Greek background, but he lived in England, and he's the major Buddhist figure in the traditionalist school. So, as we were saying before, most of the traditionalists, their formal kind of affiliation is Islamic and Sufi, but the different religious traditions are pretty well all represented. So Marco Pallas was a Buddhist. He went to he went to Tibet for the first time in the 1930s. He was actually a mountaineer, amongst other things. He was also a, a very fine musician. But he went to Tibet to climb mountains, and he was so swept away by the people and by the culture that he became a Buddhist and he became a fervent practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism for, for the rest of his life. Uh, you know, he learnt Tibet and visited Tibet many times and had Tibetan teachers and Tibetan friends and so on and so forth. So he's a very important figure in the traditional school because he's the only one as far as the sort of heavyweights go, the preeminent figures, he's the only Buddhist figure. Kumaraswamy, Ananda Kumaraswamy was the Hindu. Uh, so he's the, there are other Hindu traditionalists, but he's by far the most important one. The Christians, James Kutzinger, whom I mentioned before, who's mm-hmm. a rather later figure, is one of the one of the Christian perennialists. There's a, a Taoist perennialist. The different traditions are represented in one way or another. But Marco Pallas is a particularly interesting figure because his his writings. He didn't write terribly much, but he did produce three or four books. He, he died some time ago. But his books are permeated with a kind of Buddhist ambience that a lot of modern Western folk find more accessible and more congenial than Gainon or Shuan or some of the other writers who sometimes seem a bit intimidating and a bit combative. Gunon um, rejected Buddhism. At least early yeah, on in his... Um, he did, he did early on, and it was Marco Pallas and Ananda Kumaraswamy who persuaded him that he was wrong, uh, and he, he, he changed his mind about that. Gaynon was actually wrong about several things. He was right about almost everything, but there are a few things he got wrong. In his earlier years, at least, he didn't understand Buddhism, and he took the view which a lot of people had and which a lot of people still have, and was simply a Hindu heresy. It was just a deviation from Hinduism, a kind of aberration, a heretical aberration. Well, he was quite wrong about that because Buddhism is, you know, fully fledged integral religion like any other, religious tradition like any other. Gaynon also knew nothing about Orthodox Christianity. His whole experience was saturated in Catholic Europe and he had very little understanding of Orthodox. Christianity. So this this gave him a somewhat lopsided view of Christianity. And he was he was very pessimistic about the possibilities for kind of renewal and, and mystical authenticity in Christianity. Shuan, Shuan, I think, was Shuan didn't write about going on while he for his entire pretty well his entire life and never said anything publicly about going on because he didn't he didn't want to tarnish Gaynon's reputation in any way and he didn't want to cause waves, but he did write some stuff about Gaynon, which he eventually published. 
which unfortunately has led to a kind of ridiculous, very unedifying kind of factionalism amongst some traditionalists who want to, you know, there are these people who identify themselves as Canonians and these other people who identify themselves as Shuonians and it's all become a bit squalid and silly. It's quite quite ridiculous in, in it is, it's what they said. It's absolutely absurd. It, it, is, mm-hmm. it is absolutely absurd. And it's a, it's a function of people becoming, they become sort of fundamentalist in a strange kind of way about, about their own particular outlook so that, you know, some of these people think Danon is infallible and everything he says is absolutely right and some people think the same about Shuon. Well, of course, they're not absolutely infallible and that's not the right way to regard them. Extraordinary, though, they obviously were. It's interesting with, with Buddhism. I, I myself practice uh, Zen. Um, mm. I meditate daily and I have right. attended sessions un, under the yep. instruction of a, a Buddhist master. Mm-hmm. Um, Buddhism has a, a kind of reputation uh, for being nihilistic and, and uh, a kind of rejection of reality and, and, as you say, a kind of heretical version of Vedic Yes. philosophy. But I like to think of the Buddha in probably the historical context of which, which he lived. Perhaps the, the Brahmin class of the time, much, much like the church of today, were becoming stultified and rigid. I almost see the, the Buddha as a kind of prophet that had attempted to recapture some of the, the original vitality of that, yes. that Brahministic yes. religion. Yes. Um, yeah, certainly, in my opinion, Guignon is, uh, we're def- definitely wrong on that one. Just, uh, just changing topics briefly. Um, I read your book, uh, Black Elk, uh, Lakota Visionary. Yeah. Um, which was an excellent book. Um, part of the, the problem I, I feel for people in the modern West and part of their inability to find meaning in religion is this kind of uh, split between the way the primordial man viewed uh, the universe and the way the progressivist tends yeah. to view the universe. And there's a quote in the book by Shuon yeah. that I just wanted to share here to kind of steer the discussion towards the direction of how can people listening to this recapture this kind of view of things. And that yeah. is, quote, the, the traditional Indian was one of the freest men and at the same time one of the most bound the vast prairie, the forests, and the mountains belong to him, practically speaking. His vital space knew no limits, and yet no moment could he depart from his religious universe and the role which this imposed on him. This, uh, to me, was such a, a powerful um, capturing of, of what I personally consider to be the perennialist mindset. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about this, about the difference in the way people of a modern mindset and a traditionalist mindset view the world like they, because they're completely opposite. Okay. Well, there's many, many different angles we could take on this, but let's just start with the way traditional peoples, particularly the sort of primordial peoples, which is to say the, the non-literate peoples, how they viewed the natural world and how we view the natural world. So that might be a good place to start. Now, before I, before I go into that, just a sort of prefatory remark, which again kind of illuminates the gulf between tradition and modernity. In the modern world, we tend to think of literacy 
the ability to read and write as a kind of um, absolute good. This is a totally good thing and we want everyone to be able to read and write. Now, in the modern world, that's more or less true. It, it is a good thing to be able to read and write and if you can't read and write, you're at a very big disadvantage. So we want people to be able to read and write. But Kumaraswamy said, that's a very good metaphor, he said, uh, he said literacy's a wooden leg. It's like a wooden leg. A man has lost his leg, had a bad accident, and he's had a leg amputated. Well, he badly wants a wooden leg, and a wooden leg is a very, very good thing. He, he can get about much better with a wooden leg than he could on just one leg. But a two-legged man has no need of the wooden leg. Why would a two-legged man want a wooden leg? It would be of no use to him. Now, literacy is a bit like that. Why would people like the American Indians or the Australian Aborigines want to be literate? There's no good reason why they would want to be literate. And being literate imposes certain sorts of limitations because it mediates our experience of the world. The, the written text kind of comes between us and what's out there. So we think about things in words, we think about things in texts, when we think something's important, we write it down. When we want to know something, we go and find a book and look it up, or these days we look it up on the computer. We look it up in the form of the written word on the page. The Indians or the Aborigines or whatever, they viewed language as powerful, as mysterious, as sacred, but they didn't have any written texts. So their experience of the world, I think, is more direct, it's more immediate, it's less mediated by textual language. So that's the first point. The second point is that modern ways of thinking have become so abstracted, lifeless, and what's happened really is that language has lost its kind of symbolic texture, its symbolic resonances. Because you see, for, for primordial man, the natural world is like a text. It is, as Joseph Phillips Brown, the great traditionalist writer on the American Indian says, the world of nature is their text. It's also their temple. So everything out there in the world of nature is a kind of teaching as far as they're concerned. In other words, it has meaning. Things out there in the world, animals, seasons, climate, planets, whatever we're talking about, it all has some kind of meaning. Our way of looking at things is scientific. We ask a scientist to tell us about a tree. So the scientist starts telling us about chlorophyll and synthesis and capillary tubes and... Um, you know, it gives us a sort of description of the physical processes that go on in the in in the growth of a tree. But you ask a scientist, well, yeah, that's all well and good. You've told me about the mechanics of the tree, so to speak. You've, you've told me about its physical properties, but I want to know what a tree means. Well, the scientist can't answer that question. So what do you mean, what's the meaning of a tree? It doesn't mean anything. It's just a tree. Well, to the primordial mind, the tree has got a meaning. It's, it's, it's a symbol, unlike everything else. It's got a kind of value that transcends and surpasses its physical characteristics. 
So, for example, the tree in nearly all cultures is a kind of axis mundi. It's a kind of it's a symbolic link between heaven and earth. And this is why trees and the cross is a kind of variation on the tree. Uh, this is why trees and poles and crosses are so important in rituals all over the world because of this cluster of meanings and values and associations that a tree has. So that's another very important difference between the traditional and the modern way of, of uh, looking at things. And uh, I don't want to go on for too long on this question, but to just say one or two more things very quickly. The traditional mind works much more in images and symbols than it does in concepts and abstractions. And I think this is it's a difficult kind of topic to try and explain briefly, but I think this is another crucial difference between primordial non-literate peoples and uh, modern peoples, especially modern, modern people who people whose, whose world is it's uh, so uh, dominated by texts in one way or another and you know I include things like you know the internet say where we're, we're absolutely immersed in this swamp of artificial symbols which aren't proper symbols at all and we're we're in this kind of this kind of tidal wave of imagery washing over us through the television or the computer or the iPhone or whatever. But this is imagery of a completely different sort from what we get, let us say, for example, in a medieval cathedral. And this is another this is another way of explaining this business about literacy. You see, the people in medieval Europe, the ordinary people, most of them were illiterate. They couldn't read or write, but they could go to church, they could go to the cathedral, and they're surrounded with the teaching of the most profound beauty all around them in the in the architecture of the church and the, the stained glass windows iconography of the sculptures and furniture and the accoutrements and so on all of this is a kind of teaching which is available to anyone in a traditional culture you see it's not just the educated people not just the clever people who end up at university or whatever who can access this it's all around you it's all around you in the ambience and like you were saying before about tibet buddhism was in the air it was it was a whole atmosphere permeated life in in tibet as Palace says in one of his articles, you know, every every utensil, every artifact, every every object in daily life had some sort of religious significance, had some sort of symbolic ritual significance. All that's gone in the modern world because we are living in a completely utilitarian world, stripped of its kind of symbolic aspects, stripped of its beauty, stripped of its mystery. Consequently, we're living in a very ugly world. Absolutely, I, I totally agree with that. So it, it's um, it's interesting on many levels what you've just said. Obviously, one of my experiences that that I've had recently was was traveling to Peru, and I was in the Amazon jungle, and of course I went went to the uh, Andes Mountains as well. The destruction that was wrought on those yeah. cultures by the conquistadors is yeah. probably one of the best examples of the you know just utter. Um, yeah disrespect of this progressivist um, outlook. But one, one thing I noticed there is a lot of young people, you know, I suppose including myself, um, go there to try to experience uh, something that they don't have in their own lives. And 
the way that I did that was by participating in a, a ceremony in the Amazon jungle with yep. uh, ayahuasca. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with this. Um, no, tell me more. No? So it's, it's, tell me more. It's basically a, a visionary plant. Yeah, right. And the Shipo Indians in uh, that region of uh, Peru near Iquito and, and probably all throughout the Amazon use this mm. uh, peculiar brew um, that has many strange traits. Um, yep, yep. yep. And, and basically, they consider it more of a medicine uh, yes. than a, you know, a drug experience. Yeah. The visions yeah. are actually all the problems and uh, you know, toxification that you've accumulated. If you have visions, it's actually uh, the medicine expunging that from your body. That's yeah. literally how they view it. Something that weirdly enough struck me while I was there was a lot of the people that I was undergoing the ceremony with were progressivists. A lot of them were probably liberals, uh, yeah. neoliberals. I would probably describe them as quite left-wing. And, and I just found it so ironic that these people who were engaging in a, a culture that was traditional, a, a culture that was highly conservative in many ways, yeah. uh, and probably patriarchal as yeah. well, which uh, yeah. was strange for some of them, I think. Um, yeah. But they, they didn't seem to mind it. Um, however, when they're back at home, and you might get on the topic of, you know, Orthodox Christianity or something like that, yeah. they're the very same people that throw away everything and say yeah. that it's systems of oppression or that, you know, yes. they're outdated and, yeah. you know, they're ridiculous. It was just so ironic. I, I just yeah. found it to be yeah. almost unbearable the whole time yeah. I was there having to listen to these people. You're absolutely right. And uh, that's a very familiar phenomenon, what you're talking about. I mean, partly the the appeal of some of these cultures to modern Westerners is actually very superficial and has a lot to do with its kind of exoticism. You know, mm. so uh, of course it's it's attractive in a way to, you know, uh, get involved with these kind of ceremonies or whatever in strange places and so on, but it doesn't, doesn't they're really missing the boat, uh, as you say, because uh, on other issues they're, they're, you know, take a totally modernist kind of line without appreciating the kind of contradiction or the, the paradox or the irony of the, of the situation in which, they, in which they find themselves. In a way, I found it to be, uh, you know, similar to maybe, you know, the Black Elk fetishization of, um, yeah. of primordial traditionalist cultures yeah. as definitely yeah. a feature of modernity. And yeah. uh, at the same time, this kind of uh, rejection that, that the modern person has for their own traditions and, yes. and just yeah. throwing them out. Yeah. And it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to make people understand that. You know, they're so thoroughly enamored in, um, in matter and materialism that, you know, it's almost impossible to make people understand these things. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to touch on the Kali Yuga again. One of my own challenges that I've had, and, and this kind of relates to what I've just been talking about in some ways. Um, I, in some ways, I don't doubt the Genyon perspective of, of it being yeah. a very real thing. And then, of course, on the other hand, we have uh, this understanding of history, academic history, where we we know, you know, to some extent that, you know, the world isn't, 
you know, hum- well, as far as we know, like the, the Hindu type understanding of the Kali Yuga, how they calculate very specifically yeah. ages yeah. of, you know, 5 million years or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so for the modern mind, like, like myself, I, I tend to take, you know, a more Spanglerian view of civilization rising and collapsing, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I have trouble with that, you know, the vast expanses of time involved in, you know, the traditional Vedic conception of the Kali yeah. Yuga. Yeah. Um, how, how do you view this? I mean, do you, do you take a more literalist, you know, no, Hindu no. kind of view of it? No, no. Look, the first thing to be said is that uh, traditional Hindus treat numbers in quite a different way from the way we treat numbers. Um, and the traditional Hindu mind is extraordinarily fertile and has a tendency to hyperbole so that when the, when the Hindus say, you know, there are 330 million gods or when the Hindus say, oh, well, the golden age lasted for 50 squillion years, uh, there's no need to take this literally uh, and there's no need to get pedantic in a historical kind of or historicist fashion. There's, there's no point in getting upset about this from a sort of, you know, literal historical point of view. So that's that's the first point, I think. Sure. The second point is that there is no future, in my opinion, there is no future in the endless speculations about, you know, exactly when did the Kali Yuga start and when is it going to finish and where are we in the cycle and all of that sort of things. I heard uh, Nasser say at a conference I was attending in Canada, he said, uh, uh, one of the problems in traditionalist circles these days is that there are far too many Kali Yuga experts, which mm-hmm. is to say far too many people kind of preoccupied with these kinds of questions to which there um, no apparent answer. Shuan took the view that he didn't. He very firmly believed in the Iron Age, and he refers to it usually discreetly and only in passing. But if you go looking for it, you can find it in many, many of his works. That he he obviously believes that we're like going on that we're in the later stages of the Kali Yuga. But he set himself a rule very early on in his writing career that he wasn't going to make any predictions. So you can search through all of Shuan's. 30-odd books, and you will find no help in trying to work out when the Kali Yuga might end or so on and so forth. So the real question is not a matter of numbers or years or dates or things of that sort. The real question is whether this way of understanding the passage of time and the coming and going of civilizations, whether this is a helpful, truthful, authentic way of looking at things or whether it's mumbo-jumbo. Is it better to look at things the way we in the modern West look at them in this sort of progressivist, evolutionist, linear, historicist way? Well, as far as I'm concerned, there's no contest. The Hindu Hindu view, the traditional view makes much more sense, but you have to approach it in the right kind of spirit and you have to have an understanding of the kind of... uh, excesses and compensations that are at play in any given kind of view of things. So in, in the end, it's a matter of having a kind of sense of proportion, really. 
mm-hmm. uh, and sure. of situating things on their on their proper level. This is another kind of characteristic of the modern world that we can't we can't situate things on their proper level. So that, for instance, social social goods, social ideals uh, in the modern world have become absolutized so that the ideal itself might be a very good one if it's situated on its proper plane. But that's not what's happening. It's become a kind of uh, dogma. It's become a pseudo-dogma. Mm-hmm. It's not really a dogma because a dogma is a religious doctrine. Well, this isn't a religious doctrine, but it's a pseudo-dogma. It's, sure. it's, it's a false dogma. So, you know, I mean, inclusiveness and equality and place of women, anti-racism and all these things. Of course, seen in the right way and understood in the right way and in their proper place and seen in proportion, of course these are good things that we want to strive for. But not what's happening now, which is that people have become obsessed with these things to the exclusion of everything else. There's a slogan in the 1968 protest movements and riots and whatnot in Paris, which was taken up by some of the postmodernist philosophers and theorists. The slogan was nothing outside politics, meaning everything is political. And, of course, Foucault was the man who kind of popularised this notion in academia. I don't know if you know anything about Foucault, but he... Yeah, quite a bit. Hugely influential. Mm. Well, what's Foucault? Reduced to a sentence, Foucault is everything is power. Everything is to do with power. That... That is the driving impulse and that is the dynamic that uh, is the sort of motor force of social institutions, politics and so on and so forth. Sure. Well, you know, this goes back to something we were talking about before, which is really sterile reductionism. Now, no one's saying that power's an illusion or it's got nothing to do with anything. No one's saying that. But if you take the view that... (laughs) Life is governed by power, and that's all it is. Well, again, you're going to end up in a you're going to end up in a bad place. You end up in a very bad place. Mm-hmm. Um, There's so, kind of certain irony about the people that do believe these things that they um, they try to tear other people down with the use of power. Effectively, yeah. just yeah. I just don't get it. But, um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, finally, I guess we better start drawing this to a close. I am um, wondering. Um, so, as I said before, I I practice meditation. I yeah. am of the strong belief that these days, that uh, some sort of physical or um, how would you how would you say uh, exercise involving concentration or prayer yeah. or things like yeah. that yeah. is yeah. Uh, is critical uh, yeah. for people wishing to engage with that kind of that great affirmation, you know, that great divine yeah. principle. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you yourself have any practices that you implement daily or, you know, anything that I, you yeah. use? Yeah, yeah. I think what you're saying is absolutely right. And, uh, you know, you say you're following a, a Zen Buddhist path, which I'm very familiar with. Brother and my sister are both Buddhist practitioners and my wife oh, is a Zen practitioner for many years. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so I know all about all of that side of things. Uh, but yes, I think everyone needs some sort of practice. And for, for a Christian, there are several sort of obvious things that one can and should be doing, uh, prayer being the most important. And 
I mean prayer in its full sense, not just in a in a sort of narrow sense. As Shuan says, there are many different forms of prayer, and some of them are much closer to what you would call meditation. Mm. Um, so you know, I, I I do my best to do some of that every day, uh, reading the scriptures. Uh, the most problematic aspect of Christian life for someone like myself in the modern world is the participation in the sacraments because, of course, that's something you can't just do on your own. Mm. Uh, anyone can pray anywhere, anytime, but uh, you can't take the sacraments anywhere, anytime. So that's more difficult for someone who uh, is disillusioned, disenchanted, alienated by much of what's going on in the institutional church today. I think one of the hardest things is finding a group because, you know, ultimately these these kinds of uh, religions and things should be practiced in the context of a community, yes, uh, really, yes, to be effective. Yes. Well, that, that, of course, is another, you know, very conspicuous difference between a traditional culture and a modern culture. And as Pallas said in, in that uh, extract that you quoted, in traditional societies, in Tibet, for example, there's no word that's equivalent to religion because everything was religion. What mm. we call religion was everywhere. So there's not a, there's not a kind of uh, separation of religion, inverted commas, from everything else, from daily life, from what you see around you, from the, from the sort of moral, intellectual climate, from the way you understand the natural world, all these things are all part and parcel of a, of a traditional ambience. Whereas now, uh, in our kind of world, as you say, people who have still got some sense of the sacred and still got some sense of a traditional kind of outlook, well, we're in a small minority and we're living in this insanely fragmented, chaotic, dynamic world where you know, there's a kind of hurly-burly all around us. So then try to find kindred spirits and participate in some sort of meaningful communal practice in rituals or prayer, meditation, whatever. I mean, this is this is an ongoing problem for all of us who are in that kind of situation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I still haven't been able to probably you know, probably come across a, you know, a group of people that view the world uh, probably the same way as myself. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because as you yeah, say... I, all, all I the... appreciate your difficulties. I've had this kind of problem for, you know, most of my adult life. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. All I can say is you just, um, you know, you just got to make the best of the hand you've been dealt and um, find your way through, find your way through the maze as best you can. We're obviously living in a world that's far from ideal and mm. uh, there are a lot of things we'd like to see differently. That the, you know, There are a lot of things we wish they were otherwise than what they are and you know, no one more fervently wishes than I do that the traditional religious structures and so on were intact and alive and infused with genuine spiritual impulses and so on and so forth, but it's not the way it is. So... We just got to do the best we can. Sure. Um, where do you think a good starting point for someone who's new to all this um, yep. is? What, what kind of text should they read? Is there anything in particular yep. that 
that yep. you would recommend as a yep. way to kind of start their journey? And Look, for someone who knows nothing about the traditionalist school and the traditional outlook, there's one little book which I think is perfect, but it's unfortunately hard to get hold of. I don't know whether it's still in print, but it's called Religion in the Modern World, and it's by someone called Lord Northbourne. He published Lord Northbourne. His name was... Richard, somebody or other, but it's published. The author is given as Lord Northbourne, Religion in the Modern, because that book is written in the simplest, most direct kind of way, um, but it's very it's very good. It's, it's very much on the ball. If that one's uh, not available, there's another book by Martin Lings called Ancient Beliefs, and modern superstitions. Uh, now that also is a very accessible book. Uh, of course, you know these ideas by their nature are not always easy to grasp straight up. And I'm not saying people will necessarily find these an easy read. But I think those two books put the traditionalist outlook and the traditional principles as simply and as clearly as they can be put. So. I'd strongly recommend those two books as starting points. For people who are a bit more advanced in the sense that, you know, maybe they've plunged into a bit of Eastern philosophy or mysticism or some some other field related uh, and who, you know, have got a bit more of a sense of the possible limitations of a modern outlook, the book that I mentioned right at the beginning, The Sword of Gnosis, that collection of articles by different authors um, is a really good place to start. People who want to get really serious and plunge right into it headfirst, so to speak, and and get right into the the depths of it straight away, uh, Gaynon's book, The Reign of Quantity and the Signs of the Times, and pretty well any of Shuon's books, but um, maybe his first English language book, The Transcendent Unity of Religions, uh, would be a good place to start. Uh, of course, it depends, you know, where people are coming from and what their interests are. You know, if someone's sort of familiar with Islam and knows something about Islam, you might recommend something else and so on and so forth. You know, mm-hmm. you might recommend, say, Hossein Nasser's books or whatever. So, the starting point depends a bit on the individual, but I, those those books I'd mention in particular. So Lord Northbourne, Religion in the Modern World, Martin Ling's Ancient Superstition, Ancient Beliefs and Modern Superstitions, uh, Gainon, uh, The Reign of Quantity, Shuan, The Transcendent Unity of Religions, and the anthology, The Sword of Gnosis. I think those five would be uh, would be a good place to start. Yeah, one of those. I can say from experience, uh, some of them are not easy reads. Um, yeah. Esotericism as principle and as way, for example, uh, you recommended. Yeah, it's a very difficult book. Sure, I um, I think I'm a quarter way through, and uh, <laughs> it's been taking yeah. me quite some time to um, yeah. to really yeah. contemplate this stuff, and it really gives you an appreciation for the minds of these people. It's um, yeah. It's, yeah. it's intimidating, I think. Yeah, well, I th- I think I think Shuan's the most profound writer of the 20th century. 
I don't personally think it's that difficult, but it, a lot of people find it difficult. I think it's, I think it's a case of stating some very profound and, in some way, mysterious truths, uh, as well as they can be stated. But that doesn't mean they're easy to understand. They're not easy to understand. They're very difficult to understand. But I think he, I think he states them as well as they can be stated. You know, a book like Esotericism as Principle and Way, or um, Logic and Transcendence, or the Survey of Metaphysics. I mean, these are these are books that most people wouldn't want to be reading until they've done some groundwork and read some of the more accessible, comparatively straightforward books. Marco Pallas is actually another author that's comparatively easy to read. Mm-hmm. Again, unfortunately, his books are hard to get hold of, although if anyone's really serious, they'll find them sooner or later. But he wrote two, he wrote, he wrote several books. The first one's really good, but it's largely about mountaineering as well as spiritual matters. But later he wrote one's called The Way in the Mountain, and that's a book of essays about different aspects of traditional Tibet. And then his last book was called A Buddhist Spectrum, and that's a collection of essays about various Buddhist ideas and principles, but but from a from a traditionalist point of view. So, sure, people who've okay. people who've got a, people who've got a leaning towards Buddhism or who are involved in Buddhism, uh, Marco Palace would be a good place to start. Yep. Okay, well, I'll, um, for all the listeners, include those uh, titles in the show notes when I post them. Um, just finally, uh, I'd like to, um, to talk about your own writing. So um, a book I referenced before on Black Elk, yeah. uh, Lakota Visionary. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, I don't know if you're aware of uh, Joe Rogan. You ever heard of him before? He's a uh, kind of big podcaster, I suppose. Uh, right, um, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not up on the world of podcasts, I'm afraid, but no, I haven't heard of him. You're probably not missing a whole lot in his case, to be honest, Harry. But um, interestingly, on his social media, he's just recently been posting um, Black Elk uh, books, um, which is uh, quite fascinating. The sky's a reach of you know millions of people, so mm-hmm. it's it's interesting that these things are sort of coming up a little bit um, mm-hmm. in the popular culture. But would you, for me personally, your your book was excellent, and you know there were so many uh, interesting bits of information in it. So I'd recommend to anyone out there to uh, take a look at Harry's book, Black Elk, uh, Lakota Visionary. But are there any other books that you have that you'd, you'd like to plug? I've written, uh, lost count, I think I've written six books. Um, the first one was called Traditionalism, and the subtitle was Religion in the Light of the Perennial Philosophy. Uh, that's an attempt to give a kind of overview of traditionalist movement and a traditionalist school. That came out in 2000. Then uh, a few years after that, I wrote a book called Journeys East, which is about the influence of Eastern ideas, Eastern philosophy and religion uh, on Western thought in the 20th century. Uh, The stuff you read that you referred to earlier about Tibet was probably an extract from that book. Sure. Uh, then I wrote a book on a fascinating character who's not nearly well enough known in modern times in in the West, at least, is uh, a book called A Christian Pilgrim in India, which was about 
a French Benedictine monk whose name was Omri Lasseau. He was a Frenchman. He went to India and he immersed himself in everything Indian and traditional. Um, he, he remained a Christian monk, uh, but he immersed himself totally in Vedanta and in the Upanishads and wrote some extraordinary stuff. Uh, ironically and strangely, uh, I think Abhishekananda, he became known in India as Abhishekananda, that was his kind of Indian name. Uh, his writings on the Upanishads are actually uh, better, more profound, more insightful than anything else I've read, uh, including a whole lot of stuff by Indians. Anyway, that's by the by. So that was a book on him, uh, Abhishek Tananda. Uh, and then I wrote a book on Shuan called uh, Frithjof Shuan and the Perennial Philosophy, uh, which I think is my most important and significant book. And for people who are interested in the sorts of things we've been talking about today, um, if they wanted to look up something of mine, that would be the thing to look up, that book, Frithjof Shuan and the perennial philosophy. Then I put out a book of essays called Touchstones of the Spirit, which is a sort of collection of essays about all sorts of different subjects. And then Black Elk, the book to which you're referring, was my my last book. But anyway, this is all beginning to sound like a, an advertisement for my books, which I don't want it to be, but it's kind of you to mention them. And thank you for your supportive and encouraging words and, uh, you know, if people can find something in these books that help them to find the right path, so to speak, well, all to the good. Sure, and I know I certainly have, you know, got a lot from them. Um, do you have any upcoming stuff that you're working on or are you, you kind of uh, I think I've writing now? myself out, Alex. I think yeah. I've said what I want to say and um, I may have another book in me, you never know, but uh, I'm kind of devoting my later years to helping others. So I'm involved in various projects that, you know, other people's work, which I'm helping them with and editing and tidying up and suggesting uh, ways in which it might be improved and so on. But uh, who knows? Mm. Uh, one of those days I might be seized. But I, I don't want to be one of those people who goes on endlessly repeating themselves. I've, I've said what I need to say and what I want to say. So unless I'm visited by the Spirit and uh, think I've got something new to say, uh, I don't know that I'll be doing much more writing. But it's full of surprises and you never know. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Mm. So to to just finalise things, uh, so we've gone through, you know, some good resources for them, but if if there's anything you could communicate to them, because I, I honestly think that some of the people that probably suffer you know, greatly from many of the, you know, the scourges of progressivism are young men, young men particularly today. Yeah. Is, if there's any advice you could impart to them, um, you know, is, it, is there anything you could, you could yeah. say? That could, yeah. You know? yeah, difficult question. I understand what you're talking about. Um, I would just say one thing, which is that we're being encouraged on all sides to think very much in terms of what we might loosely call identity politics. And 
I think a lot of the problems that you're referring to, a lot of things that young men in particular are experiencing presently, uh, derives from this obsession with identity politics. Now, as I was saying before, some of the impulses behind some of these movements are good and insofar as they're sort of looking to remedy various abuses and prejudices and discriminations, whether they're to do with sex or race or whatever, uh, I'm all in favour of them. But there is this kind of danger, and I think young men in particular are exposed to this, although I think young women are too, but it affects them in a slightly different kind of way. Sure. Uh, my advice would be don't let anyone persuade you that the most important thing about you is your social identity in terms of, you know, your skin colour, your religion, your gender, your sexual orientation, whatever. That is not really, in the end, the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is your spirit. And if you look after your spirit, if you tend to the spirit, if you look after your inner life, a lot of these problems in the outer world, in the social world, in the world of Facebook and all of that, they will resolve themselves. But as long as you're hooked up in that, as long as you're caught up with all of that stuff, as long as you're obsessed with, you know, images and roles and social expectations and all the pressures that go with it, uh, you can't win in that because that, that's a dead end. So remember that you're, a, you know, in Christian terms, you're a son or daughter, as the case may be, of God. That's, that's the most important thing about you. And that's what you really need to hang on to. Make that, make that the centre of your life. Not, not whether you're in tune with current fashions or whether you're ideologically correct or, you know, whether you have a prestigious job or whether you have money or whether you're hip or cool or with it. Those things really, in the end, are peripheral. Uh, it's your spiritual life that matters. I think that's about all I can say, Alex. Well, that's uh, extremely profound and I'd have to say timely advice, Harry. That's uh, an excellent way to finish off the interview. So I'd just um, like to thank you for coming on. This has just been uh, an amazing chat and I've uh, taken a lot away from it. Well, it's a great pleasure for me to talk to you, Alex. It's, uh, it's good to have someone who's uh, listening and taking what I say at least half seriously. So that's... That's all to the good. And, definitely uh, more than half, definitely more. I, I commend you for the work you're doing and if you can bring some of these ideas to some of the young folk out there, well, um, all strength to you. And, uh, you know, I'll just say in closing, if you, uh, if you want to do this again sometime and, you know, maybe one day we'll have a chat about something more focused and limited, um, you know, we could, uh, we could have a talk just as an example. We could talk about the limitations of the scientific way of looking at the world you know that's a that's a whole field in itself or, or whatever whatever sure no i so, think we we definitely should pick it up um obviously this one was more of a general uh, introduction yes. for people but yes. as i yes. said i mean there's so many things uh, that i want to discuss with you uh, yes. and and that scientific um outlook is, is definitely something i'd like to drill drill down more on mm. all right alex well i look forward to talking with you again down the track right. and um all the best to you and people who might uh, happen to listen to all of this. <laughs>